Um, his title today um, is Migration, Digital Images, and the Future of Insurgency. John, okay. Well, thanks a lot for inviting me. I want to say, first of all, that the book set out to explain how mass migration and mass communications and uh, the fact that we were now understanding the propaganda as a deed much more clearly than before transformed the nature of insurgency. In fact, uh, so swiftly did it transform that the, um, the insurgent side picked up on that transformation rather more rapidly than the government did. So that's the sort of stepping off point uh, for this um, next 45 minutes. And what I want to do this afternoon very quickly is to speculate from that start point, from the idea that uh, insurgency is a constantly evolving and altering technique, speculate where that takes us in terms of the future of expeditionary forces such as Afghanistan and also where that takes us in terms of understanding uh, what that effect is on our own domestic security. The problem about using words like terrorism and insurgency, which I'm going to do quite a lot, is that there are out there, mainly in the direction of Whitehall, a lot of government departments such as the Home Office and the Ministry of Defence and a lot of academics and a lot of academic departments who have a sense of ownership for these words and um, have very successfully boxed them in to tight little sentences which define them. And that has a very repressive effect when you start to try thinking about um, uh, insurgency, which is, as I'm hoping to point out, is a very dynamic process. So I'm asking you, in the sort of after-lunch drowse, when you start to let go of things, if you could also let go of the sort of straitjacket in which these words live at the moment, and try and come with me uh, uh, and think of them as a rather uh, continuously evolving process which is altering at much the same speed as the societies from which they arise. Okay, so if you go back a century on the theme of um, transition, this evolutionary process which I'm trying to describe had back in those days, looking at this timeline, several different forms uh, of insurrection, ranging from the sort of anarchists in the uh, streets of um, Europe through the Irish nationalists out onto the uh, sands of the Arabian Desert with uh, T.E. Lawrence. And it wasn't really uh, until Marl began to address his carders out in the field in the 1920s and 30s that this fairly ad hoc process out here became reduced to something uh, which you could transfer from one theatre to another, uh, from one population to another, and later from one state to another in the form of a doctrine. And in this case, it was a doctrine for mass subversion, 
by which populations could be subverted on an absolutely industrial scale by the million. And as you would expect when Mao stood up before his cadres, the doctrine that he spoke of conveyed and embodied principles and characteristics. And in this model, which you hardly see, but you can see just enough to make out this word here. I can't that you a very good test of this old eyesight. Um, that if the population was wooed across to this side by the insurgents, the probability was that the insurgent side of the campaign would prevail. But if you shifted the signs and the government and the security forces managed to woo them onto their side, then the chances are that they would prevail. And the point being made was that the campaign turned on winning the popular support of the population. And so if the main effort was to win over the population, then you had to expect that the insurgent organization, which was successful, had to create an organization which had a predominantly political character rather than a military one. On this chart, only 20% of these activities here are strictly military. The, the main effort coming out of the organization was about persuading, extorting, infiltrating, subverting, and so forth. And the interesting thing about it all in those days is that terrorism down here was just one of these options for the insurgents. And it was definitely subordinated to the overall campaign, which was emphatically insurgent. So terrorism wasn't such a big deal. Okay, real forward to the uh, to the present, really, and with the perspective of about 70 years hindsight, you can see that this Maoist model had some fairly important limitations. It was very labor-intensive. It was uh, very narrowly territorial in, in, in its direction, and its structures were pretty rigid, fairly... Uh, top-down, and its command energy came in that direction to the foot soldiers at the bottom. And so by the 1970s, uh, this Maoist prototype, which had been so successful uh, against the post-colonial regimes, began to come under pressure itself. And the doctrinal certainties of that formula, which Mao stood up and lectured to his men about, were being eroded by migration, by mass communications, and by the televisual image. And terrorism, which had been such a diminutive part of this thing, was now growing in importance and taking up a much more central position in the overall campaign. And I want to use a very crude model, uh, which you will titter at slightly, even after lunch, to try and explain those ideas in greater detail. Here it is. It's fairly minimalist. <laughs> um, it explains the migration factor. And on this chart here, you have to imagine the map of the world has just been rubbed off. But while it was on, the bum of Africa would be somewhere in this area here. The Atlantic's out here. Uh, China, South China Sea, Pacific, Australia. And in the center here, the Middle East, the north coast of Africa. And all you have left on this chart 
is the approximate location of the main populations living in the center of those continents. And you have to imagine that through a process of migration which has been taking place for about 400 years, that the most enterprising and the strongest of these families have migrated out southwards into the southern hemisphere, northwards into the northern hemisphere, and that through that process they've established about 70 or so distinct communities in these other places where they find themselves a minority marooned in a culturally different and an ethnically different majority. And you have to imagine that by the year 2000, there are now 23 million Africans and Asians up there in the EU and beyond in greater Europe. And by the year 2007, every EU state has by now, that is every native state certainly, and uh, possibly every EU state, has by now got a pretty sizable migrated population. At the top end of the scale, countries like France and Germany, about 6 million. And at the other end of the scale, a country like Iceland has about 100,000. Now, so far, this is a totally benign process. And these people move for very good humanitarian reasons. They want to improve their our family's security, they want a better opportunity to succeed in a place which is financially richer and, and more vibrant, they want access to better uh, living standards and conditions and so forth. But towards the end of the 20th century, you, you started to have nationalist revivals uh, in this area here along the coast of North Coast of Africa and through into South Asia. And these nationalist revivals um, tended to lead to disturbances, uh, led to insurgency, led to civil war and gradual escalation, uh, enormous civil displacement in some cases, humanitarian disasters leading on to complex emergencies and so forth. And I'm speaking mainly of the chaotic 90s um, and that period. And in some cases, the rather unattractive, uh, rather repressive regimes cracked down on their dissident populations with a fairly unbearable brutality. And that sent a stream of people who were deeply disaffected by their experience in their own country, who joined those existing migratory flows which were heading northwards and southwards and these rather different people brought with them a bitter disaffection uh, uh, and a, a fairly powerful sense of activism arising from the insurgency that they had already been involved in and when they uh, arrived in their new host countries that is say for example in Europe they tended to use these places as a safe base for which to carry on their subversion. Now, as long as that pattern of random islands um, has no sort of unifying structure and they're sort of marooned out here on the face of the earth, there's no way that a future revolutionary figure of the stature of a future Mao or a future Lenin is ever going to reach out and turn these isolated modes 
into some sort of uh, a revolutionary constituency. That is until mass communications became a global reality, because that provided the missing dimension. With mass communications, it became possible for tiny minorities of similarly disaffected people, who up to now had found themselves scattered across the face of the earth, to now locate each other across time zones and across space. And this development was not happening because of um, some master plan hatched out by Al-Qaeda Central sitting in a cave in the northwest frontier provinces of Pakistan. It was happening because there was a much bigger social revolution going on across the world like a landslide. And we were all part of that. We are all part of that. If you reach into your pocket uh, and grasp hold of that little plastic machine that you no doubt have there, you too are very soon connected onto these international highways where network by network through the hubs and chains of the internet, you join social organizations which uh, uh, put you in touch with um, very different people from whom you spend most of the day with, which are no longer defined by territory. Okay, so, this is a very crude model, okay, but what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to make is migration dispersed these populations so that you could now find families of Somalis living in a, a, a wild place like Oslo so that you could find almost entire villages from the Mirpur district of um, East Pakistan living in, in, in the central uh, uh, UK town like Rochdale. You had that dispersal. And the model also shows how in the 21st century mass communications now provided a network so that these tiny minorities who had up to now been marooned somewhere on the surface of the world could now locate each other and animate each other and spark ideas off each other in a way and to a degree that would have been quite unthinkable 10 years previously. But in terms of organizing this constituency into an insurgent force, we're still not there. We're still missing something which would have to be so shocking and so arresting that it could bring a selected part of this uh, population to the boil. And in this case, obviously, where this population is so dispersed, that effect, that shock, has to be delivered virtually. It's not something that a man can do or a woman can do by wandering around the world in a white toga, preaching to people in the street. You have to get them some other way. And that effect was known as propaganda of the deed, the use of a violent image to explain a narrative or an act which could ignite a population that was already on the edge, smoldering, and push them towards some sort of violent action. When Mohammed Bouzizi set himself on fire on December the 17th in Tunis, it was the images and the narrative of this dramatic thing that he did that more or less dropped that spark into uh, a Middle Eastern region that was already moving in, in, in that direction. So the question is, how does this 
multiplying effect take place? How did academics explain the propaganda of the deed? This is a, a definition that we cobbled up in King's College. Uh, I'm sure because it's Oxford you managed to tip a bucket of shit over it, but that's all right. Uh, it's just a sort of starting point to explain what we meant by propaganda of the deed. And the point about propaganda of the deed, it had, by the 21st century, become a defining characteristic of insurgencies, especially insurgencies which arose from the constituency of a post-industrial society. And the point is that propaganda, which for decades had been a sort of peripheral activity uh, in that sort of porter cabin across the yard, behind the loos, was now moving center stage into the middle of your headquarters to become an overpowering effect around which you organized your operation. The thing had turned on its head. From the perspective, from the perspective of the organizers, the attack that implied by this graffiti was not about the dollar value damage done to the city of New York. It wasn't about the emotional hurt that you did to the population of New York. It wasn't about the fact that you, tiny little micro uh, organization, were challenging um, the, the US security in a very significant way. The value to the insurgent organization who perpetrated this thing was to send a massive electric shock to their own constituency. That was the point. So that when that casually supportive young man or woman uh, around the world saw this event unfolding itself endlessly on the screen as it did, hour after hour, privately in, in his own head or in the privacy of his own apartment, he danced and cheered as if his team had hit the winning goal at the World Cup final. This image was powerful enough to send the recruiting figures for extremism, extremist organizations rocketing skywards. It, it created a whole rash of new extremist websites. It, the hits on these websites also went rocketing skywards, and the, the sales of the Quran um, also went uh, amazingly upwards. So how does that shock translate into insurgent energy at street level? Um, yes, uh, this is not much of a slide, but I will explain it. You can more or less read This is my best effort to explain what happens in a sort of industrial town. It could be somewhere um, four hours north of here. It could be somewhere in Europe. It could be somewhere on the north coast of, of Africa. And this chart shows a series of network flows in a community, like a sort of borough council community, um, and which are like the blood vessels on a mammal, and the energy is pumped around by the propaganda of the deed, which is a sort of heartbeat. So that when that young man or woman sees those images on the screen, it sends that person out on a journey of private, personal radicalization, so that they are associating more with other radical people, so they are listening to uh, radical lectures, so they are downloading radical stuff 
on the television. And while they do that, somewhere on this curve here, they inevitably meet the the man who is genuinely from a hardwired international terrorist organization, who in this function is the talent spotter. And the talent spotter will get a hold of that that um, very disillusioned young person and begin to groom him or her and begin to introduce him into even wilder and more extreme uh, groups and, and uh, literature and um, visual images and so forth until finally they might even persuade them to go abroad where uh, a, a properly swept up military organization will teach that young person how to put a bomb together, how to select a target, how to, um, very importantly, how to avoid the security forces when they get back uh, to their own country. And finally, who knows, that young person uh, himself or herself becomes um, the, the, the center of a future propaganda of the deed event. So, by the time, good grief, let's change color. That should be pink, and that should say Mao, and that should be an extended line moving into the, uh, the, the, the um, 21st century. And by the time we reach the 21st century on this chart, this model has altered. And what has happened is that what had been up to now a fairly monolithic process is now uh, taken on the sort of appearance of a trident and spread out into a number of uh, distinct um, forms which from a military perspective uh, have uh, important differences. Okay, if you think of these as being organized in uh, an escalating um, ladder of effectiveness, at the very bottom of this ladder is the uh, feral uprising, which you would find in the sort of collapsed state where society is flat on its back, where government and the security forces have gone, and feral refers to the sort of crude militias which move into that lawless vacuum. We saw them fairly recently in uh, uh, some of that um, upheaval in Côte d'Ivoire. You can see them now fairly regularly in somewhere like DRC, and obviously you, you get them in uh, Europe as well, and there was... Uh, a certain amount of feral militia going on in um, Balkans and the Black Sea states. Going up the scale, the popular insurgency was the direct descendant of Maoism. And examples still flourish uh, in this century, obviously in Afghanistan, but also recently in Nepal, Sri Lanka, and Thailand. And then at the top of the uh, scale, you have the globalized movements which arose from post-industrial societies such as our own. And the, and the point to note here is that the global insurgent, the globalized insurgent, is the antithesis of the Maoist in some important ways, because the global uh, version is deterritorialized. The global version is almost labor-free, informally structured. It has the sort of organizational characteristics of an amoeba, self-generating, self-repairing, organic, without a head, without a tail. And if governments and their security departments were keeping up with these developments, they would by now have a doctrine which reflected these distinctions, because each one 
requires its own operational concept. There isn't a one-two-fits-all approach. Okay, so moving to the, pre the absolute present, we're still with the blue, uh, but you see how that goes on from the last one. Um, this process goes rampaging on, and we've got a new prong to our trident, um, which is the, the smart mob. And what is happening here in particular is the sort of Facebook generation demonstrating its ability to challenge governments, challenge really any government. could be a dysfunctional government on the north coast of Africa, but it could be a very swept up, democratically elected government in London. They've done both. And they do it by surge messaging techniques on a massive scale, which has the effect of bringing out a sort of tidal wave of citizens into the center of the capital. And the point about this chart here is that our societies all over the world in this space of time here have been altering at a dramatic place with, as I said before, globalization, migration, mass communications. But from the perspective of someone who's looking at the evolution of insurgency, I think what governments have failed to notice that the techniques and practicalities of insurgency are actually altering at the same pace, at the same speed. So what I want to do is to use that assumption about this very swiftly evolving nature of insurgency to speculate where that takes us in terms of the utility of future expeditionary forces and the nature of our own uh, domestic security. Okay. For several reasons, the, the prospect of more expeditionary forces um, on the scale of Afghanistan um, is in doubt. And, and I mean, it's fairly well exposed that there, there is a researched lack of public support. They are extremely costly, and the, there is not much conviction about the degree of success they achieve. There is a fourth, uh, perhaps less well exposed reason, which is that we really don't have an operational concept for doing them. And one reason for this is that the campaign, the, 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 um, in the, the campaign that we conduct is, or rather still hinges, on the disposition of the population. But the nature of the population has changed enormously in the last 50 years. Going back to this slide here, which I'm glad to say is still in red. No, it's not. It's in blue. Um, it's red here. Um, you remember that, for example, in Malaya, when you spoke of population, you could almost argue that in Malaya you were speaking about one population. I mean, if you want to be really picky, there were actually four populations. And then there was an additional population back home in UK. But the point I'm making about the Malaya model, which is what this really is, is that whether there were five populations or just two, it was a manageable entity. You could persuade them about their disposition towards the campaign. Fifty years later, that situation altered quite a lot, um, and it involves several populations. If this is the operational space, you now have um, 
the uh, adjacent states who are around that space, whose populations overlap into the operational space. Further afield, you have the concerned states who are connected to the issues in that uh, insurgent area because they have a similar ideology or religion or ethnicity. Further afield, you have the elements of that state who have migrated outwards, and on top of that, you have the intervening states. And these are the people who are going to make up the international coalition. Uh, and the interesting thing is to, to note is how these states very often contain an element of the population to which they're about to send their um, uh, force. The point I'm making is that the idea of wooing the population, POP, as in the first equation, to your side, to your side of the campaign, a campaign which in the past hinged on the disposition of the population, is now, in the 21st century, infinitely more complicated than it was before. And where is the centre of gravity, by the way, on this chart? Okay, the second reason why future coalitions on the scale of Afghanistan are, are unlikely is that in real politic terms, the international expedition does not prevent or decrease the prospect of a terrorist attack in the streets of our homeland cities. In fact, uh, a lot of people who work in the NGOs at the front lines in our UK cities argue that it actually increases that likelihood. And the reason for this is explained if you uh, look at the altered nature of the adversary that we face in that place. Okay. Um, ah. there, in, okay, so we're back on the slide here. That is the operational space. And in it, there are two, possibly three, different kinds of adversary which we could encounter. Obviously, right down at the bottom of the food chain, there is a sort of local insurgent, the sort of road bandit, border smuggler, gang member who you are from time to time employed to take part in an operation. And above that, rather more dangerously for the, for the government, there is some sort of a national insurgency which is far more dangerous and better organized and better motivated. And above that, you have this globally organized structure of insurgents who manifest themselves here under the heading of foreign fighters. But typically, they also have a, a, a part of their organization, a very important part, which is spread across the insurgent archipelago and connected horizontally in a series of network flows, which, if you destroy them, can very easily be grown again. And so they're headless, tailless, and organic. And by being in that configuration, you now face uh, an adversary which has far more depth than the one that you faced uh, in the previous century. And you can't assume any longer that by attacking it there, you make much difference to what's going to happen in your own country, or you make the rest of the world a safer place, and that you are actually dealing with the global dimension. 
as I said, the, 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 the campaign in Helmand seems to increase rather than reduce that possibility uh, in this state. And you're looking at a, 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 an adversary now that has considerably greater operational agility. Um, it's tactically impulsive. You can switch its attack from the, uh, the, the operational space here out to somewhere else very swiftly. It can attack that uh, hotel used by the agencies in Kabul, and within a week it can switch its attack to uh, an airport building or um, some other center for the population in, like a railway station, um, in, in, in the, the, the coalition state's own country. And by doing that, it begins to move very easily inside our decision-making uh, loop. Okay, this is a genuine blank, which uh, denotes Tahrir Square. And the, the question is, what can we learn from what happened in Tahrir Square and similar places? First of all, the, the doctrinally, the adversary is dynamic. And they move intuitively along the same evolutionary flow as the society from which they arise. So, um, in the case of a post-industrial Facebook crowd that is constantly tweeting and, and, um, and texting, you obviously expect to meet those techniques in the, uh, on the insurgent side if, if uh, that's what you're pitted up against. And if that is what you're pitted up against, the, the chances are that you, the security forces, are vertically organized. And it's very hard for a vertically organized um, um, counter-insurgent force to keep up with a leaderless mass, as you had it uh, in Tahrir Square, which assembles at a focal point in a capital city and then marches through that city, constantly uh, altering its direction, rather like a flock of starlings, uh, which uh, moves in a formation in the sky and it makes those alterations with much greater agility than the force arrayed against it and then when they occupy that central position uh, as they did in Kiev uh, very successfully and also in Cairo sometimes for days, sometimes for weeks what you see springing up in that place in the, in the form of um, a, a space somewhere in the square for bloggers, a space uh, for artworks on the wall, newspaper walls, a wall of heroes, a stage so you can address the crowds, and even things like uh, crashes and pharmacies and camps. So all these things sprout up of their own accord from uh, something which is almost leaderless and horizontally formed. I'm not making a point about the politics of the Arab Spring. What I'm trying to say is that we scarcely understand how that leading edge of an insurgent population, of that insurgent energy, we scarcely understand how that works. And institutionally, we're a thousand miles from actually developing an operational concept of response. We do have doctrines. Uh, we have actually quite a good doctrine for counterinsurgency. Um, and the problem about the doctrines that we have both the US one and the UK one, is that they are both essentially Maoist. They describe the ongoing campaign now, which is essentially expeditionary. 
And if you regard that as a wave band, the only bit that they cover is the bit that I've shown. And the problem is that the concept of the expeditionary force, which they articulate, is, is really rather a 19th century idea. I mean, it's almost Victorian. Whereas the, the insurgency, uh, the, the insurgent, the, especially the global end up here, that I've been trying to uh, describe to you, is, is quintessentially a 21st uh, century phenomenon. So the question is this, if this doctrine did describe that end of the spectrum more accurately, what would it have to include? First of all, it would have to have a space in which it described the centrality of the virtual dimension in the campaign and the fact that both sides now commit acts of violence not in order to win tactical objectives on the ground, but in order to win space in the media and win space in the mind. And the fact is that the insurgent completely understands that idea. This is what our man Osama bin Laden had to say about it. Um, and obviously his lieutenants uh, ran with the ball to some extent. And um, General David Richards completely understands this. And he's as sharp as a blade. Um, and that's what he had to say about it. And more, if, if you really look around the internet. But what is not clear is that below him, there is a caucus of generals who also get it. Because if there is a caucus of generals below him who genuinely get it, it hasn't become translated into any sort of doctrinal um, publication or doctrinal discussion. What has happened is that we moved from this sort of thing to this sort of thing. And in moving, the terrorist act, which here is very subordinated and part of a big political canvas of activities, to here, where the terrorist act becomes the central effect, becomes the whole sun and moon of the operation. But that doesn't mean that this activity which is happening here is just about an act of terrorism and can therefore be engaged by a campaign of counter-terrorism, which is virtually what the prevent strategy which was announced last week now that is absolutely not the case what is happening here is insurgent go back to your Latin and think dynamically about that word instead of allowing it to become boxed into one of those military defense definitions what is happening here is essentially political it involves a population and that depicts the various things that are happening in a population and it's much more serious than just an act of terrorism and it needs a commensurately serious response which like counterinsurgency is essentially political and it's the failure to show the difference between those two things um, and to understand the disparity between those two charts which is the measurement of how far behind we are uh, in relationship to the insurgent and that's it Thank you, John, very much indeed. Um, first